Well, brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. You may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and that is your cue, kids. Sometimes uh, children really help to just drive the point home. Uh, So uh, I should uh, continue to say this anyway, even though the kids are already doing my work for me. Blue Station, ages three to five, you are following Miss Paula uh, on your right. And Gray Station, ages six to fifth grade, you are following uh, Mr. Mike. So make, make your way on back there. Parents, if you are new to our church and you've got your kids with you and you're interested and curious about what our children's ministry looks like, there's some volunteers back there if you do want to take your kids. Uh, it's safe, secure, and a, a wonderful environment for your children to uh, learn uh, the gospel. So our kids are going to be reviewing the fact that God is worthy, perfect, and triune. Worthy, perfect, and triune. Uh, Again, my name is uh, Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it is my joy to be uh, before you this morning. Uh, If I asked you to name your favorite book, what would you say? I want you to take one second. You don't need to say it out loud, but feel free to find me after the service. What would you say is the name of your favorite book, arguably the greatest book ever written? I want you to think about this. Can you take it one step further and say which chapter in that book is the greatest chapter ever written and why? If one comes to mind, it's probably because the chapter contained elements that drove the story powerfully forward. It was most likely emotionally gripping and involved compelling characters. It was intellectually captivating and it likely highlighted the hero's journey and sacrifice for the greater good. I think, for example, the titular character uh, and hero, Harry, takes a literal stroll down memory lane to learn that the apparently villainous Professor Snape was not the evil man he thought him to be, but was, in fact, one of the bravest men he ever knew. Or riddles in the... Yes, spoilers, sorry. (laughs) Or riddles in the dark by Tolkien in The Hobbit, where our favorite burglar Bilbo asks the ingenious and one might argue unfair riddle, what have I got in my pocket? Or, even better yet, thanks to the influence of both Pastor Brett and my wife, the chapter The Choices of Master Samwise in The Two Towers, where Sam, the true hero of the story, Thinking that his master Frodo had been killed, takes upon himself the burden to carry the ring of power to Mount Doom to complete Frodo's mission. These are but just a few examples of the greatest chapters ever written in fiction. This morning, we will begin a two-part series looking at what is arguably the greatest chapter ever written. The greatest chapter ever written. If you have your Bibles turning there, the book of Romans is found in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are black pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, You can use the table of contents to locate the book of Romans. If you're new to reading the Bible, you're also welcome to follow along on the screens. The uh, book of Romans uh, found in the New Testament was written by the apostle Paul in the early first century, written to both Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. 
And with the first 11 chapters dedicated to expositing God's saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the final four chapters dedicated to putting sound doctrine to practice, this magnificent letter is about good news. Good news. And today, we will look at the greatest chapter ever written. And we're going to consider from this chapter, Romans chapter 8, six great realities. Six great realities. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is our first great reality. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. I'm going to say that one more time because I know we're in for those in Christ. Amen. That's right. No condemnation. None. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Sam Storms, he commented on this passage and he asked the question, what are the two most glorious words that a sinful soul can hear? What are the two most encouraging and heartwarming words that I could speak to you today? What two words have more power to lift you out of depression than any others? What two words can put your fears to rest and deliver you from anxiety and doubt? What two words do each and every one of us here today need to hear from God? No condemnation. You beat me to it. But the greater news still is that not only will you never suffer condemnation from God, you will experience indescribably joyful happiness and peace and bliss in your relationship with Him. You have not simply been delivered from something, but also to something. You are no longer under the penalty of the law, but you are in Christ and thus destined for an eternity of profoundly loving fellowship and intimacy with him. Storm goes on, and he says, If you are in Christ's only hope for forgiveness and eternal life, I can assure you today that there is no condemnation that you need to fear, and that there is no possibility of separation for you in your relationship to God. Friends, that is good news. That is the best news you will hear today. And that is the best news you will hear tomorrow. That is the best news you have ever heard. And that is the best news you will ever hear. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Friends, is that good news for you? Is that good news that you exult in? Is that good news that you think about for a second but then get bored with, with the everyday thoughts of your day-to-day -day life? Friends, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Absolutely none. Zero. The bank is empty. No condemnation. The condemnation that the Apostle Paul is pointing to here in Romans chapter 8 is to the condition of being lost and damned and alienated from God. The, the condemnation that he speaks to here is the absolute opposite of what it means to be justified. Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if, if Romans 8, 1 is my favorite passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is probably a very, very close second, if not a tie. 
Paul says earlier in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Condemnation is the absolute antithesis of justification, according to Paul. To be justified means we are righteous in God's sight and accepted into his presence. Condemnation, on the other hand, means that, uh, that a person is unrighteous in God's sight and is to be rejected and excluded from his presence. If to be justified is to to be before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, to be condemned is to stand guilty before God, clothed in only your righteousness. For all those who are in Christ Jesus' church, I ask you, what amount of condemnation remains? None. There is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ. In Jesus Christ alone, all of our condemnation has been taken away. It is gone. It's been wiped clean. Have you, dear brothers and sisters, have you stopped to consider what our great, holy, and just God has done with our rightfully earned condemnation? In His abundant grace and mercy, the Lord has decided absolutely decided, and his mind will not change on this. He has decided not to punish nor impose any penalty whatsoever on those who are in his son. He's not changing his mind, folks. Our nation rightly came upon us by virtue of our having been in Adam. Yet now by being in Christ Jesus, our condemnation has been removed, never to appear again, not even a shadow. What has taken the place of our condemnation then? Peace with God. What more glorious good news do we as a poor and sick and needy people have to exult in? The condemnation has been taken, and all that we have been given is liberation in Jesus Christ. Friends, that is glorious good news, and that is only our first reality. Our second reality. we got 16 more verses to go, y'all. Verse 2. Follow along with me. Paul goes on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sin, own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, our second great reality, God has done what the law could not do. God has done what the law could not do. Some might read a passage like this and uh, incorrectly come to think that the law was ultimately futile or useless, that it served no purpose. But that would be a grievous misunderstanding. The law exposes both the holiness of the character of God, read Romans 1 through 4, and our utter sinfulness and inability to keep the law, read Romans 1 through 4. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. A very, very important observation that we see there in the sermon that the law served a purpose. 
And it pointed to something and someone much greater than us. The law ultimately pointed to the fact that we could not keep it. That we need a Savior who can perfectly keep the law. What Paul is saying here in these brief verses is that the law was weak or impotent to save us because in our sin and rebellion against God, we were weak and impotent to obey it. Not only were we weak to obey it, we had no desire to. Sin leads us to really enjoy hating God. That's what sin does. What the law could not do, God has done. How? Look at verse 3. What the law could not do, God did. And he did it by sending his own son. Underline that verse. His own son. Why didn't Paul why, why say that God the Father sent the son? Why, why, why is Paul saying his own son? Friends, the little details in reading the Bible makes a really, really important impact. Paul says this to emphasize to us and to the Romans the cost of the declaration of the phrase, no condemnation. God didn't send just anybody. He sent his own son. The condemnation that we deserve was taken from us and laid on God's own son, Jesus Christ. And it was by sending his own son that God condemned sin in the flesh. Christians understand that when Jesus was nailed to a cross, God condemned his own son instead of us. It is, uh, uh, it is fair to say that this was quite an unfair transaction. What did Jesus do to earn the wrath transaction? This was a wildly uneven exchange and transaction. The son took upon himself the sentence of death, which was a result of our sin. Christians recognize that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But unlike you and I, he has no sin. He does not have a sin nature. At no point did the Son of God ever find the Father to be boring or a chore or an enemy. The Son always and will always love the Father perfectly. Our sin bore a sentence of death which was carried out in and on the person of Jesus. If you are not a Christian... There's a lot of buzz in the media and maybe in your workplace and people trying to explain to you what they think Christianity is. Christianity, first and foremost, the central point and the core crux of Christianity is the good news of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human, truly God, truly human, who lived a perfect life of obedience and love for the Father, who lived a perfect life you and I could not live, who died a substitutionary death on the cross, but unlike all the other great religious teachers and moral teachers and moral influencers of the day, he did not remain in a grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose from the dead, vindicating not only his claims, but demonstrating that he, the Son of God, perfectly fulfilled all of God's purposes and will. He now reigns 
living, ruling over the universe. This is Jesus Christ. Cut through all the noise and the buzz and look at this, God's own son who is condemned in our place. The guilt and the condemnation that you and I deserved was what theologians say imputed to Jesus in our to him, put onto him, who endured our penalty in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This would be a great verse for you to memorize this week and reflect on every single morning over your cup of coffee. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, the Son of God, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the wildly uh, uneven exchange that Christians exult in? This verse, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he is saying, God reckoned unto Jesus the guilt and condemnation we deserved. Jesus was treated as guilty of our sin, and he was punished so that we, simply by faith in him, might be the recipients of his righteousness and thereby saved. Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ? But there's a th- Because God has done what the law could not do. But there's a third reality we ought to consider. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our third reality from the greatest chapter ever written, simply, setting our minds on the Spirit is life and peace. Setting our minds on the Spirit is life and peace. Kind of sounds like circular reasoning and circular logic here. You know, you set your minds on the flesh, you're in the flesh, you're saying Spirit, you're in the Spirit, and so on and so on. But Paul here is not saying that Christians are partly dominated by the flesh and partly by the Spirit. It is true that Christians will deal with ongoing sin indwelling sin and the the ongoing temptations and lusts of the flesh. But this is not a Christian version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where we become a monster at one point, but then become a saint again at another point. Rather, what Paul is highlighting in these brief verses, he's essentially saying that there's two kinds or categories of people. Two kinds or categories of people. There's the one category of those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then the other category is those who set their minds on the spirit. It's effectively black and white. But it may be difficult to see. What does it mean then to set our mind on something? What does it mean to fix our minds on something? I mean, most fundamentally, this means to be most deeply interested in it. What is the one thing that takes up the, uh, most of your, your thoughts and your mind and your to-do list on a day-to-day basis? Whatever that is, 
it's taking your mind. You set your mind on the thing that is uh, taking your attention. When your mind is fixed on something, that thing, the object of your thoughts, becomes your chief and principal concern. My chief and principal concern on a day-to-day basis is my wife and my children. Uh, My chief and principal concern presently right now is this sermon to feed the church. My chief and principal concern at some point tomorrow will be work. A person whose mind is set on something, say the flesh, is preoccupied with and ambitious for fleshly or worldly or just merely natural things. Uh, When Paul says that the uh, mind of uh, of the one whose uh, mind is set on the things of the flesh, what he's saying is this is a person whose mind is set on the flesh that prioritizes worldly, earthly, and altogether natural and sinful values and actions and beliefs. Worldly, earthly, not heavenly, not of God. The flesh is what dominates their thinking and demands their affections and devotion. So when someone has their mind set on the flesh, whatever that might look like, the expression of the flesh, what they're effectively saying is, this is what will satisfy me. I will be happy the longer I hold this. I will be happy if I possess this. I must have it. And it demands my attention and my affection. Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, he uh, gives very specific and explicit examples in Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21 of what this looks like. He, He goes to say, this might be another helpful passage for you to underline, highlight, and reflect on this week, but he goes on to say, now the works of the flesh are evident. That means it's clear to see. It's not really up for debate. We know what it is. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Basically, fill in the blank. It's evident. Now, in a well-respected, respectable culture like ours where we don't want to rub shoulders the wrong way or you know, rub feathers the wrong way or whatever the phrase is. We don't want to ruffle feathers. That's what I'm trying to say. We don't want to ruffle feathers because you know, you're a nice person, right? Are these then just minor issues that we should just simply ignore? Evident works of lies. Should we ignore or minimize these evident works of the flesh that we see in the life of other believers? The Bible says no. Should we then ignore or minimize the works of the flesh that we see in ourselves? The Bible again would say no. If you continue to read the rest of verse 21, Paul goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not really up for debate. He's very black and white here. Look, you give yourself over to the flesh. If the flesh is what characterizes you, you are not in the spirit. And you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you stay in your flesh. The uh, English uh, preacher John Stott, 
He said very helpfully that to set your mind on the things of the Spirit of, is to make spiritual things, spiritual truths, spiritual values, the matters of the Spirit of God. He said, quote, the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. Let me say those four things again. The absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. It is a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us. Those British guys had a really nice way of speaking. He goes on to say, it's, it's of how we spend our time and our energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves up to. Friends, what do you find your minds fixed on? What do you find your minds fixed on? Those objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose, what preoccupies your mind today? What preoccupies your mind right now? Do you think often of the Spirit? Do you submit to His guidance? Do you ponder the glorious things that God has done for you in Jesus? Do you need some help pondering what God has done for you in Jesus? There's lots of helpful resources. Pastor Brett, Pastor Josh, and myself are always pointing you to resources. Consider picking up Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer. There was at least one sister in the church who approached me and said, Pastor Chris, this book has been so helpful for me because that little book, a couple of paragraphs, has helped her to think about the wondrous things that Jesus has done for her. Friends, do you spend time reflecting on the majesty of Christ? Do you interpret life and its many questions and challenges through the lens of what the Spirit has revealed and declared in the Scriptures? I'm not asking you these questions to just lead you down an unhelpful trail of, that there is of self-examination that leads you to just spiritually navel-gaze. I'm trying to help you to see that there is a way for you in which that you can enjoy the riches and the glory and the majesty of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Perhaps the most effective thing you can do this week, the most productive thing, the best investment that you can make with the most promising returns is simply to meditate upon the matters of the Spirit of God who dwells within you. He dwells within you. To set the mind on the flesh is death. And Christians must recognize that because of the great use and uh, looseness and freedom we have with religious language, it is very easy for us to use religious Christian language to justify the fact that our minds are really just preoccupied with our flesh. Right? It's very easy for us to say, well, I really want to invest really well in this thing because it's going to you know, bring about great promise. When the reality is your heart sinfully craves material wealth. You love money. It's very easy for us to use religious language for that. If your mind is fixed on the flesh, Paul says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, regardless of what the flesh promises you. But if you set your mind on the spirit, there is life and peace. Life and peace, when your mind is set on the Spirit, that requires work. That requires cooperative effort. That means your mind must think about something. 
It means your mind must be informed of the scriptures. It is not enough to simply say, I wish I read the Bible more, or I wish I had a better knowledge of the scriptures. It's not enough to just simply say, I wish. The Lord has given you the ability, and he has given you the resources. And I don't mean blogs and parachurch ministries and online resources and and helpful books, which you should read absolutely. The resources are sitting right beside you. Do you need help setting your mind on the spirit so that you can enjoy life and peace? The resource that the Lord has given you, perhaps the most effective resource, is the fellow member of this church who is sitting right next to you. But we have to move on. There are more realities that we must consider in this wonderful passage of Scripture. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is, brothers and sisters, the distinguishing feature of the answer to this question believes in Jesus Christ? There are plenty of ways we can and do answer this question. Probably quick to say, love for the brothers. The Apostle Paul, he gives us a really clear answer to this question right here in verse 9. If the Spirit of God dwells in you. Our fourth reality, we are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells within us. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells in, within us. Again, it kind of sounds like circular reasoning, right? Like, you are A if B is true, right? You are in the Spirit if the Spirit is within you. You're just kind of circularly reasoning through this. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells within us. Paul is very plainly using very simple language. And commenting on this passage, Storms, again, he said this so helpfully, and it it has blessed me in my preparation. I think it will serve you this week if you think about this. The Christian life is profoundly, from beginning to end, a supernatural life. It is a life that is energized and sustained by the indwelling presence of the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God the third person of the Trinity. By supernatural, I don't mean new age powers or demonic activity. By supernatural, I mean the active, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to live beyond and often in defiance of our natural inclinations. Friends, it is very easy to forget about the Spirit of God. It's very easy to do so. And in many churches, the Spirit of God is ignored and minimized, just not thought much of. In other churches, the Spirit of God and and some of the more uh, mysterious workings are are grossly overemphasized, right? But the Spirit of God is not a paperweight. The Spirit of God is not a... The Spirit of theological books that sit impressively on our bookshelves. The Spirit of God is not stationary, He he is not some sort of stationary object that accomplishes nothing. 
The Spirit of God is active, and He empowers His people to do something. The presence of the Spirit of God enables us, as Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 6, to walk in the newness of life. There is power in the Spirit, but that power is not simply meant just for you to indulge on your own self. The power of the Spirit of God in your life through His presence is meant for you to kill sin, to trust Jesus, to love the church, and to follow God. I love what Storm said about the Spirit enabling us to live beyond and often in defiance of our natural inclinations. I don't know about you, but times where I am tempted to give into my natural inclination, let's say with anger, man, I get angry. But I am reminded in those moments of anger that the Spirit of God dwells within me And he is not passively sitting on the sidelines saying, come on, Pastor Chris, you can do it. He is actively working in my heart, bringing about conviction of sin and reminding me of what is true and pointing me back to the fact that the Son of God spilled his blood so that I could walk in the newness of life and I can live beyond and often in defiance of my own natural inclination and say no to sin and no to temptation and say, God, by your mercies, help me. And the Spirit of God does. He does. It will look imperfect. It will not look as clean as I wish. But the Spirit of God does actively empower His people to say no to sin. What does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit dwells within us? You Storms went on and he said, It's not the same as what you and I are doing right now. You are sitting in an auditorium. But you don't live or dwell here. This is not your home. The Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses is quite explicit. He says that it points to a permanent abiding presence. There's a profound difference between someone who is a squatter and a homesteader. Between a momentary and casual visit to a place and putting down your roots where you will live indefinitely. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. He doesn't appear momentarily and then just as quickly disappear. He lives in us permanently. He has made himself at home in our hearts. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells within us. The good news just keeps multiplying. It's as if God does not tire of blessing his children with good news. So you not only not have condemnation, and not only do you have the good news that God has done what the law could not do, you not only are now empowered and enabled to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, but the Spirit dwells within you. But the list goes on. There are more realities for us to consider. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Specifically, we are children of God. Friends, is there a specific label or title that you would like to be known by? Personally, I would like to be known as Big Strong Daddy by my children. But what, what is the one category, the one label, the, the one title that if you secured, you just breathe easy. Our fifth reality, we are debtors to the Spirit as God's children. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 uh, verses, uh, tw- uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 1, particularly in verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. There is no greater title, there is no greater label, there is no greater award, there is no greater status than being called one of God's children. And we are debtors to the Spirit of God and gives us God's children. Since the Spirit of God dwells within us, He gives us the power and the ability to not live according to the flesh. We have no obligation to follow the dictates of the flesh, none, nor to live according to its promptings. Our responsibility now, instead, as the children of God, who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, who is working within us to set our minds onto the matters of the Spirit and onto the Spirit Himself, our responsibility then is to look to Christ, rest in Christ, and to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. And notice, too, that in these verses, verses 12 to 16, Paul says that everyone who is being led by the Spirit is a child of God. He goes on to, to, to say, he says that, uh, that only those who are being led by the Spirit are children of God. So it's easy to say, you're specific, all God's children. Nope, we are not. Because the Scriptures specifically say, you are a child of God, if the Spirit of God leads you. So how does the Spirit lead us? Emotional prompting, the, the wind blowing the Bible page to the right page we're supposed to read and then it lands onto some awkward page and we're like, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, that's the Spirit of God leading us. How does the Spirit lead us? We'll look back at verse 13. The Spirit leads us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. It's not very mysterious. The Spirit leads us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. The leading of the Spirit describes His ministry of imparting to us the power and motivation to kill sin in our lives. It is easy and tempting to treat sin as a pet. What we must treat it as is an enemy that must be killed. The Spirit leads us to put to trust in Jesus, to submit to the Father, to obey the Scriptures, and to put sin to death. And this cycle repeats over and over and over. This is how the Spirit leads us. I've got one more great reality for you, if those first five weren't enough. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our sixth and final reality, suffering will give way to glory for all of God's heirs. Suffering will give way to glory for all of God's heirs. Brothers and sisters, this is not a catchy, creative, artsy tagline to include a sermon. This is God's promise to his people. Suffering will give way to glory for all of God's heirs. But we must first understand that the Christian life is one of first suffering, then glory. The Christian life is one of suffering, then glory. Suffering precedes glory. Consider the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Again, this would be a wonderful passage for you to meditate upon this week. The Apostle Peter says to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters, there are saints right now who do not have the pleasures of worshiping freely in a beautiful space with the heat, I think, working in a land that allows for you to worship with no consequences, no fear of retribution, there are brothers and sisters presently right now suffering in the middle of war zones in Israel and in Palestine and in Africa and in Asia. And our brothers and sisters presently are those who are suffering according to God's will, entrusting their souls to a suffering creator while doing good. Friends, suffering precedes glory. Consider that fact in the life of our Lord himself. Why would we be exempt from a life of suffering if the Son of God himself did not exempt himself from a life of suffering? While he laid his glory aside in his condescension and his incarnation, he lived a perfect life of worship and obedience to the Father to suffer and die on a cross, to then be raised to life and glory. Our Lord now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory and power, suffering then glory. And while Christians will at some point and in various ways face tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, notice how the examples Paul gives, like this is actual suffering and not like the momentary discomforts that we think are suffering. Like re, re-engage our perspectives with what the scriptures actually say suffering is, right? We will face suffering, 
for Christ. And yet we rest in the promise of our faithful God that glory is coming. Glory is coming for all of the Lord's beloved heirs. Do you know how an heir is identified? An heir is identified today uh, by a person's will. A, a will or a last will and testament being a legal, legally binding document. It describes exactly how the, the, the owner of the will wants their assets to be handled after they die. The will identifies who will inherit a portion of their estate as they have deemed it. And it's typically in the will the names of the deceased person's uh, children as the legal heirs. Friends, did you reflect and consider how the Apostle Paul describes Christians in our fellows in verse 17? As heirs, with, as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that. Heirs, with, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The heirs with Christ by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Heirs with Christ who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. Heirs with Christ who is the head of the body, the church. Heirs with Christ who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Heirs with Christ in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is who we are heirs with. And as God's heirs, what do we inherit? Flip back to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and you'll see that, like Abraham, we are heirs of him. As God's children, we inherit all that belongs to him. Do you know what Psalm 24, verse 1 says God owns? The whole world. All of the lands that are disputed, all of the lands that have been discovered, all of the lands that are presently being polluted and burned and and being bombed, all of the lands that will one day come, the whole world will be for his people. But most importantly, we inherit God himself. We inherit God himself. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It should go unspoken by now, but you should probably underline that verse. Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26. Whom have I desired in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, we inherit God. The greatest, the deepest, the all-satisfying treasure, the greatest joy and the greatest peace that you will ever experience He gives to you abundantly with no limits. It never ending. This is our beautiful inheritance. God. Not just some sort of abstract object that we think about on a fleeting thought. 
But the creator, the governor, the preserver, and the ruler of the universe says, you are my child, and I will give you all things. Me. He gives us himself in Christ. Friends, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. God has done what the law could not do. Setting our minds on the Spirit is life and peace. We are in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells within us. We are debtors to the Spirit as God's children. And suffering will give way to glory for all of God's heirs. Friends, these are but six great realities from the greatest chapter ever written. And this was just part one. Let's pray. Father, we exult in you. And we rejoice in this good news that you have given to us that we are in Christ by faith and your spirit dwells within us and you will never abandon us and you will never let us go and our lines have fallen in a beautiful place. You are our inheritance. Father, we rejoice now. And should we not rejoice, Lord, would you by the power of your spirit help us to see clearly of the good, wipe the fuzzy, blurry vision and give us crystal clear sight of the good news that we have as children of God. Would you help us to rejoice? Would you remind us by the power of your spirit all of the reasons we have as your people to rejoice? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your promise never fails and we thank you that your presence will never abandon us. And Lord, we commit the rest of this time to you. We ask that your people would be strengthened, would rejoice, would exult, would overflow with hope and thanksgiving, would look to the Son of God through the Spirit of God according to the Word of God for the glory of God. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.